Welcome to the Heart of Sheridan Road. This is episode number seven with your host, Anne-Marie Turpak, Director of Institutional Advancement. This is Anne-Marie Turpak, Director of Institutional Advancement and your host for today's podcast. And you are listening to the Heart of Sheridan Road. We are pleased to have Dr. Michelle Borba, an internationally renowned educator, best-selling author, and parenting, child development, and bullying expert with us. Dr. Borba is at Sacred Heart Schools presenting three talks to parents and faculty and staff. I'm also joined by Sue Haybach, our high school placement counselor and middle school counselor, and Lisa Zimmer, our primary school division head. Dr. Borba, we're grateful to have you sharing your wisdom with each of us who care for our students. And you've been a great blessing to our community in these talks you've, you've given us thus far. We're thrilled to share more of your insight to our parent community and extended community via this podcast. So to get us started, I'd love you to speak to the importance of empathy. What is empathy? Oh, first of all, thank you for the invitation. I have absolutely enjoyed every moment of being with your parents and your staff. And we're talking about, I think, one of the most critical topics of today, and that's about empathy. Empathy is feeling with someone. It's not sympathy, that's I feel for you. But empathy is the seeds for actually everything we want in our children to be good and noble and strong and compassionate. The best, most important thing is that we now know, latest research, is that our children actually arrive hardwired to care. But we have to be intentional as parents to be able to tune it up and to be intentional in changing a little bit of our parents so we follow the science. That sounds difficult, but the best news is there's no app, there's no program, it's just us in our common interactions with our children and what we can do is raise good kids. So with that thought in mind, can you please give us some very concrete examples as parents how we can start from the very earliest months all the way up until the end of when they leave our house to develop and encourage empathy? Certainly. The most important thing, first of all, is to realize empathy is kind of scaffolded. We can start when our babies are little wee ones and keep going because it's a womb-to-tomb scenario. We can actually stretch our own empathy levels as adults. It also is made up of habits. So let's just take a moment and say, what are the habits? And then we can look at dozens of ways to weave it in. Empathy starts at a very early age with emotional literacy which just means our children understand emotions. Our little teeny ones, our infants, are looking at our faces. They're hearing our voice tones, and they're actually tuning in a lot smarter than we ever give them credit for. But emotional literacy is the gateway to empathy because you have to be able to, I know that mommy looks sad because I see her face. I know daddy sounds sad or frustrated or anxious, or I know that I'm really embarrassed. That's actually going to help our children step in and step out. Number two is moral identity. We know that children are more likely to help another human being or even help themselves. If we've planted in them, here's what our family stands for. And they have inside their head is, I'm a caring person. You act how you see yourself to be. The third side is called perspective taking, and it's actually the cognitive side of empathy. That's understanding where another person's coming from. It's going to take a little while, but our little ones can't have perspective taking unless they have emotions. There are simple little things we can talk about of helping our kids learn to understand. That's actually going to build our world so it's more global. We're going to be able to actually stop a lot of the bullying and stop the hate because kids have perspective taking. It actually helps us get along better with our kids. 
Moral imagination is number four. That's one of the most wonderful ones. We now know that reading children's literature to our children can activate their hearts. Five, we know, is uh, that thing called self-regulation. It's helping our kids tone down their emotions if they get too strong, so they have healthy ways to handle the stress. We're looking at one out of five of our children right now will have some kind of a mental health disorder. That's horrific. It means stress is an epidemic level, anxiety goes up, and it creates something called the empathy gap. That means you can feel it, but you don't act upon it because your stress levels are too high. The good news, there's simple ways to help our kids. Then there's practicing kindness. The more they just simply practice kindness, or hi, how are you, how you doing, being friendly, saying please and thank you, it means children are tuning into one another. Uh, collaboration is number eight. That means our children are actually learning to uh, get along with others because empathy is really about we, not me. Final two ones, collaboration is seven. Courage is number eight. That is having the courage to step in and do the right thing when you see somebody being treated unfairly. And finally is altruism, that altruistic leader. It sounds lofty, but the best news is each one of those habits are simple little things that we can do. All right, so in the beginning when you have a young child, as young as one year or two years old, you're suggesting you have to help them identify what the feeling is, correct? Yes, and you do that at age one and two by doing something called talking feelings. Every time your child, for instance, looks sad, oh, your face looks sad. Look at mommy's face. My face looks just like your face. He needs the emotions in order to do it, in order to get it. Beware. We talk feelings far more with our daughters at age two than we do with our sons. Our sons need emotions. So the easiest thing is talk. Talk feelings, talk emotions far more. Get out those picture books. Put them in front of your little child as they crawl up in your lap and look at it. Go look at Sally's face. Make your face look like Sally. How do you think she feels? When children begin to get those feelings, they're going to be able to reach out and feel for others as well as themselves. As they get a little older, and this is not going to stop, you can watch that great movie Inside Out. It's fabulous, but watch it with your kids and then talk about the feelings and the emotions in them. And later on, when you're disciplining your child, and please do so, you can also talk feelings with your child as well. How would you feel if that happened to you? What do you need in order to feel better? Emotional literacy... Talking feelings is the gateway to empathy. Now, let's talk about something serious for a minute. We're looking at empathy that's plummeting with our children right now. We now know that just in the last 30 years, this is 72 different studies, are actually discovering that children's empathy today in America is 40% less than it was 30 years ago. Why? Well, one of the things that's curtailing emotional literacy, which is the gateway to empathy, what they're doing is they're focusing on screens, they're watching TV, they're focusing on iPads, they're focusing on computers, they're looking at video games, they're not looking at each other. Little simple thing you can do starting at the age of two and don't stop when your child is 17. Make a rule in your house, always look at the color of the talker's eyes. Always look at the color of the talker's eyes. But don't just make it a lesson, model it. You do it with your child because the fastest way to learn any of these skills, this is the cool thing, is if you model it as the parent, your child will pick it up from you, and here's a win-win. Not only will your child have higher empathy, not only will you have a better relationship with your child, but you're also boosting your own empathy levels. One of the things we're also discovering is that many of our children 
have been so bubble wrapped, meaning we want to solve all their problems. We want to protect them. Oh my gosh, we don't want them to be unhappy. And of course we don't. But if we keep always solving all of their issues for them or helicoptering them so we're always wrapping them with, here, honey, I'll do it, or talking for them at a young age. We rob them of so many of the empathy skills, but we also rob them of one of the most critical skills right now is moral courage. That is being able to speak up, do the right thing, solve their problems. But the other thing is we rob them of resilience. Resilience and empathy go hand in hand. Because if you keep bubble wrapping them, what you also are doing is not helping a child realize that I can solve a problem on my own. I can do it. I can grow up to be capable and competent. And you do that step by step. You know, I was, uh, I've been a lot of places around the world and children have always told me some of the coolest solutions. And there was one kid in Taipei. He was absolutely a phenomenal child. He had the sense of humor, he had resilience, he was the leader, he had the grades. And I finally looked at the 17-year-old who was actually giving me a tour of the Taipei American School and I said, quite frankly, why aren't you stressed out? All of your friends are. They really were just completely disheveling because every kid was concerned about their grades, concerned about their tests, concerned about how am I gonna get that scholarship. And he looked at me and he laughed and he goes, it was how I was raised. And I said, oh, please do tell how you were raised. And he said, my parents used the baby step model. <laughs> I said, what is the baby step model? He said, I think my parents were really wise. They knew that I was going to endure a lot of stress. They knew it was a stressed out world. And so instead of protecting me or bubble wrapping me, what they did was give me little dosages of stress along the way. Until pretty soon what I realized is I could handle the stress. I wasn't going to be paralyzed from it. I knew I could handle things. They teach me how. They gently push me in. That's the baby steps. Until pretty soon I could handle it. I said, how's that different from your friends? He goes, a lot of kids come into this school and all of a sudden what I see them doing is completely falling apart. The stress, they don't know how to handle it. They're used to their parents solving it for them. And so they completely kind of dishevel. And I looked at him and was like applauding, going, oh my gosh, what a wonderful technique. And we look at the same thing of what's happening in colleges. We're raising actually the smartest generation on record. Their 4.0s are now 7.3s. But college mental health counselors are telling us we're not doing very well. Our kids are coming in extremely smart, but ill-prepared to handle life. And the number one times our kids are most likely to be depressed, suicidal, and, and actually drunk out of school is into freshman year, first semester of college. They don't know how to cope. They don't know how to handle the stress. And their parents haven't used the baby step model. And they bubble wrap them. They bubble wrap them. Another thing you spoke about yesterday that really hit home to me was the whole idea that you have to define who you are as a family. Yeah. What's your mantra? Can you talk about that a little bit? Thank you for asking that question. Because number one is, remember the first habit was emotional literacy. But the second habit of empathy is moral identity. It means that children need to understand that they are a caring person. Or they need to have values in their home that says, we're about social responsibility. What we do know that is empathy needs a moral rudder that pushes kids to do the right thing. That said, how do they get it? You parents planted in your child. That's another thing that we've got to be a little more intentional about. And in fact, one of the, the neatest things, as I was writing a book called Unselfie, I interviewed dozens of kids who parents said, who teachers said, that's a really altruistic child. Go find out how he became that way. And so when I interviewed them, one girl said, 
when I asked her, you know, I hear that you're doing phenomenal things to make the world a better place. How'd you get that way? And once again, she said, it was how my parents raised me. And I said, tell me how your parents raised you. She said, I'll never forget it. I was about five. I had two brothers and they were a little bit older, a little bit younger. My dad said, everybody get to the living room. And we walked into the living room in our PJs. We sat down and we looked at all these big poster boards all over the floor with marking pens. And my dad said, we're going to spend the next few minutes figuring out the kind of family we want to be. What do we want to be remembered for? That's actually creating a moral mantra for your family. But dad did it very concretely. He said, come on, what are some things that years from now or right now, who do we want to be and what do we want to be known for? And we started brainstorming. And pretty soon, all of the poster boards were covered with words like, we want to be respectful or we want to be responsible or we want to be caring. And pretty soon, Dad said, okay, we can't be all of those. What's most important? And as a family, we voted. And that's who we became. Their last name was Perlins, the Caring Perlins. So then I said to her, how did you remember that you're the Caring Perlins? And she said, quote, unquote, it was impossible not to. My mother must have said it 50 times a day. Remember, we're the Caring Perlins. She dropped me off. We're the Caring Perlins. We had a big sign on our refrigerator. We're the Caring Perlins. My dad would do these hi-fi packs. We're the Caring Perlins. If we did something wrong, my dad would say, I'm disappointed. Remember, we're the Caring Perlins. It became embedded in us. And pretty soon what happened is we became the Caring Perlins. I became the Caring Kid. And as a result, I now remember that value above all else. Actually, she said, I got married a few months ago. The last thing my dad did was have a hi-fi pack. Remember, we're the Caring Perlins. And then as my dad walked me down the aisle, I just sobbed my way through. But I kept thinking, I'm never going to live in that family again. But I'll always be the Caring Perlins. Our children need moral mantras. This is a world right now that does not, does not advocate for character. But you can still do that in your home by just repeating what you stand for and making sure that it's embedded in your child. Your children act how they see themselves to be. We all want our children to be caring people, and one of the things we can do is have them do service for others. Mm -hmm. And how do you figure out what your child, your family, will choose to do to give to others? First of all, we do know from research that children who are happier are children who give, not get. We do know that as wealth goes up, science shows empathy goes down because you start feeling entitled that I have it all and I don't need to give. But one other thing that we've really clearly discovered is that the best way to boost empathy, one of the best ways, because there's dozens, is face-to-face -face connection. When a child actually gives to another person or does something to make a difference with somebody else's life, and every kid said it was the look in that person's eye that realized I could do good or I'm a caring person and I couldn't stop. Therefore, what's the problem? We seem to do a lot of service. And all of our kids, we do service hours and every high school and school has dozens of them. The problem is we don't match the child's interests with the service. We do a lot of times what looks good on the college resume, not what works for the child. The wise parent is the one who sits and watches the child a little more. Many kids said, my family used to talk about the news each night. And I now realize that the reason they were talking about the news was to try to figure out what was my concern. Was it a water shortage? Was it hunger? Was it the kids down the street who didn't have cots or beds? Or what was it? And as a result, when my parents figured out what really concerned me, then they'd say, so what are you going to do about it? They challenged me. 
They always helped me plan what I could do, but they never started by telling me to collect a whole bunch of money and send it far away. Instead, what we said, let's do something in our own community, in our own backyard. One boy said that my, my parents knew that I loved to read, so they suggested that I volunteer to read to the little kids during the summer at the local library. And I'd read to them once a week, but it was one moment when I said to these little guys who were all sitting around loving books, okay, when you go home, which books do you read? When they said, we don't have books at home. I was so devastated, this boy, that kids didn't have books, that when I went home to tell my parents, they said, so what are you going to do about it? What can you do? My parents said, you don't have to go outside. You can do something in your own neighborhood. I did the easiest thing I could do. I put a box by my mailbox that just said, donate some books. And every week there was all these books that were donated. Then I got my other friends to donate books and then bring them to the library so kids could go home. Well, it was the look in their face when they grabbed a book and realized they could take it. I realized that my own empathy was open because I was doing something good. They had these books. Let's go one step more. That kid has now donated 16,000 books because he mobilized his whole neighborhood as well as his own community. Now that's one child because he's a kid whose parents realized it was books. There's other kids that realized it was about hunger because they did something real brilliant. The parents got other kids together and said, I don't think you understand what hunger is. Let's do a hunger famine. Let's do it for, could be eight hours, could be 24 hours, depending upon the kid. But boy, when they felt like what hunger felt like, then they started working at the food find bag. Figure out what mobilizes your child's heart and then do it together. But please do it face to face because every child said, my heart opened when I saw the look in the person's eye that realized I could make a difference on that person's life or somebody's life. One of the things we all know is that there are moments in every family where things are not exactly the way they should be and you need to discipline your child. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to how to weave in empathy as you have to correct them because they have to know what right and wrong is? Well, here's the bottom line. All of these habits actually blend together. So when you discipline, the first step you want to do is make sure your child has emotional literacy because now you can talk feelings. The second thing is moral identity. You're going to see in a minute that your family code is going to also help you with your discipline. But the third feeling is perspective taking, understanding somebody's view other than yourself. You're going to put those three together and watch what happens. It's based on Martin Hoffman. So what I did is I looked at the best scientists in the world. They've been studying kids for 40 years to try to figure out how come some parents discipline able to get not only a well-behaved kid, but also a more empathetic child. Martin Hoffman said it's the parent uses something called inductive discipline. So let's just pretend your child has done something called being a little mean or not being caring. Step one is, okay, be calm. If you want to do time out, that's cool. But get yourself calm and now have a moment to get your child back with you. Put the three things together and here's your first thing you do. I'm disappointed. It's called inductive discipline. It's a statement. I'm disappointed in that behavior because I know you're a caring person. Remember in this house, we're about, we're the caring pearl in family. That wasn't caring. Now go step one and ask, how would you feel if that happened to you? There is emotional literacy 101. Your child will probably admit sad. Okay, now flip it. All right, now let's look at your friend. How do you think your friend feels? 
What are you going to do in order to make your friend feel better? And don't go just say, I'm sorry. What are you going to do to actually make him feel better about it? Maybe you need to go put your arm around him. Maybe you need to go make him a note. Maybe you need to give him your toy. Or maybe you need to repair what you've done. But somehow you need to make it better. What happens is that slow little process actually helps the child begin to see himself as a caring person begin to realize your expectations and what they are. He doesn't want to disappoint you because he loves you to death. And you put all these together, not only is your kid better behaved, but also more empathetic. Now remember, one-time deal isn't going to do it. You need to consistently use that approach. And once you, in fact, any of these ideas, once you grasp the idea, the one little idea, for instance, the baby step approach, the helping the child learn self-regulation, the use inductive discipline, Parents say, I'm overwhelmed. I say, well, don't do it all. Find one thing and just adopt it as a ritual in your own family. You do it regularly on a routine. What will happen is it'll become a habit. It'll become easier and easier for you. But you're also, you will gradually see a change in your child because one-time lecture never changes your child's empathy level. It's an ongoing process, and that's the buy-in. Michelle, in the primary school, we have a mantra, so I was excited to hear about that, and it is safe, respectful learner. So every time that a child makes an unwise choice, is what we call them, they come and talk, and we loop that, was it safe, was it respectful, were you being a learner? And so that learner piece really is about how you're attending in the classroom. Are yes. you respecting the teacher? Yes. So, we, it, so the funny story is a parent called me and said, I was in the car with Teddy and he said, mom, it's that lady that says those three words. And she said, what lady? And he said, the lady at school that her three favorite words are safe, respectful learner. And the mother said, Miss Zimmer? And he said, yeah, that's her. That's the one I'm talking about. So we're starting to gain a lot of momentum. Before I got here, there was an amazing rubric and it was safe, respectful learner. And it was all delineated out as to what it meant to be safe, respectful and a learner. Yeah. And now we're intertwining it just in their everyday life. So to follow up with that, we're gaining a lot of success for that. But as an instructional leader, how do I guide my teachers in teaching empathy in the classroom, things that they can do tomorrow? Thank you for that. First of all, I want to just repeat what you just said is exactly the bottom line. Notice that one of the things we may not do nearly enough as parents is we don't repeat enough. We don't repeat the same things over and over again until it becomes embedded. Some little guys, particularly younger ones, they got to take time to process it. Safe, respectful learner. What the heck does that mean? Safe, respectful learner. By the time you've said it 20, 30 times, like the Perlin family, we're the caring Perlin family, it finally becomes embedded. So maybe the first step of this is a family and as a teacher is to ask yourself, how do I want my child to turn out? How do I want my learner to turn out? What are simple little rituals I want to keep doing over and over again? In terms of teaching in the classroom, I think one of the big things is we're more likely to use these strategies and techniques if we understand the why. What's the reason for it? What's the value? What's the payoff? What's the benefit? Same with the parent. If I know that this is research-based, that this is going to give me the more empathetic, well-behaved kid, I'm more likely to do it. So the first thing I always tell the teacher is, you know, it takes three to seven years to really change your whole teaching approach and your whole school. But think big and start with one simple little thing at a time. And it may be, as parents and teachers, 
reading about it, getting at the cognitive level first, doing a Google News alert so empathy comes up in research and I become more and more aware and I'm going, yep, this matters. What happens over and over again is slowly we begin to see something that I think is really important. We begin to recognize that empathy is not a soft and fluffy skill. It's essential and it's crucial. And many parents think, oh, I'm just going to raise a wimp. This isn't about raising a wimp. This is about raising a morally courageous child who steps in and does the right thing. It starts with emotional literacy and you weave your way up. Second of all, as a teacher, it may be getting into the shoes of the child. We're always about teaching the child empathy. But a great question as a parent, as a teacher, would be able to say, where's that child coming from? What does he need? We can't go up and ask the child, why did you do that? But we can try to figure out where's he coming from, what does he need, and going that way. It's also a great tool as a parent. Empathy is your best part of your toolkit. Uh, the other thing that's really simple as a, as a teacher and as a parent combined, we already do it, but let's keep doing, literary fiction. Reading those children's literature selections like Charlotte's Web, like Stone Fox, like Wednesday Surprise. We cry when we read them, but that's okay because they're emotionally driven. And what we now know is that those kinds of books actually activate the part of our children's little brains where compassion is. We as teachers, if we're in literary book clubs, it actually helps us. Let me tell you one, one group of teachers. They were at a level where they finally understood the empathy. And now they wanted to get into the empathy levels of the children. And they realized that many of their kids were coming in on the spectrum. And they didn't understand how is it that a child who has autism or on the spectrum of autism or Asperger's, what do they need? And so what they did is they read as a group, Curious Incident of the Dog at Nighttime. It's a novel, but it's written by the perspective of a child with autism. It changed their entire teaching because they got into the shoes of the child. We need to slowly and selectively start trying to figure out where's that child coming from that it's we need to be led by the child as opposed to we leading the kid. So one thing I'm really excited about as the middle school counselor is your new book, and I haven't read it yet, but I love the title, and it is End to Peer Cruelty, Build Empathy. You list 45 tips to help. Well, let me describe, first of all, I got a backlog on how that book was written. How I got into the field of empathy was actually working with youth offenders and school shooters. And what I began to realize is that violence is learned, but so too is empathy. And many of our kids uh, don't have another way. And so flipping around, I wrote a bill to stop school shooting. And I'll just say how this began to be. I wrote the bill, and it was about how to build empathy. How do you create an inclusive environment? Why we now know that bullying breeds in certain environments and not in others. One of the reasons why it breeds in certain environments and not in others is because the culture is empathetic. The second thing is that the parents and teachers are monitoring and watching it. 85% of the time that bullying happens is when adults aren't present. So we need to help children stand up to the plate and help each other. I wrote the bill though, I delivered it and I was in, this, in the assembly chambers, as you can imagine, I was stressed out. I went outside to get a glass of water and I heard this strange noise. And it was a kid age 15. Why he was at the center chambers, I do not know. But he walks by me holding up his jeans so they wouldn't fall down. He turns, looks me square in the eye and says, great speech, lady. Now, when a 15-year-old says that to you, it's like, wait a minute, stop, come over here. What did you like about the speech? And he said, well, I liked all the stuff you talked about teaching kids how to care. 
because that's what nobody's doing these days. Keep giving the speech, lady, because that's what we need to do. It would stop bullying if we knew how to stand up and speak out and do the right thing. And then he turns, and I'm like shook, and he turns and he turns back and he starts to walk away. He said, please keep giving that speech. It would have kept my brother out of jail. So, and now I'm convinced, okay, that kid's got something going. What I did with the book is, is help children when I started doing focus groups. They all told me, I can't stand it when my friends pick on other kids. But the problem is I don't know what to do. If you taught me what to do, I would step in and do the right thing. That's moral courage. That's the eighth step. But first thing we got to do is we got to define what bullying is to kids. And it is not just a conflict. Every kid has an argument. That is not bullying. Bullying has three points to it. Parents, you got to know what bullying is because too often we start complaining to the school and it is not bullying. It's normal conflict. Bullying is always, number one, intentional, deliberate, cold-blooded cruelty where one kid chooses another kid and deliberately chooses to be mean to that kid. He can do it physically by punching him, emotionally by excluding him, deliberately verbally. Most bullying, by the way, starts verbally and it could be also online. Don't go looking at online as the biggest problem. Most bullying starts face-to-face. -face. If we can stop the bullying face-to-face, -face, we'll stop it going online. The second thing, though, it's almost always repeated. But the third part of bullying is it's one-sided. One-sided means it's one kid picking on another kid who can't hold their own, either by, a lip, by ability, size, status. And it's also a kid who doesn't have the empathy. And so he's picking on that child deliberately. What I did um, actually was a Dateline special that was really darn fascinating to me that bullying usually happens across the world, most prevalently in middle school, every place in the world. I always tell kids, if you can live through it, you're going to do fine because it's that age where self-esteem is low, empathy starts to plummet a little bit. And kids start to pick each other because they really want to be popular. But what we do is we get through to the kids and we start teaching them empathy. We start building their empathy. And then we teach them what's called bully buster skills. Six things you can do to step in and do the right thing. And we role play. We tell kids, by the way, not each one of these skills is going to work each time. And every situation is different. But the first most important thing is knowing that bullies want power. Don't give them the power. If you see somebody who is being treated unkindly, who is deliberately being bullied, don't stand by the bully. Move and stand by the kid who's being picked on. That alone is being an upstander. It's hard to speak out to a bully. But if you move the power and put it over there, other kids will follow you. You can be the leader that follows. Another thing you can do is exit. If you can't do anything, don't stand there because you're giving the bully the power. You can also go and tell. You can go and tell and report. And that's not tattling. That is helping. Tattling is when you're trying to get somebody in trouble. Reporting is when you're trying to get somebody out of trouble. You're trying to help that kid and that's using empathy. Go and say, hey, this kid needs help. You can also speak out if you want to. It's really tough. If you want to speak up to a bully, don't give him a dissertation. Just say, stop it. Or that's mean. Or you're hurting that kid with a period. You can mobilize the other kid. You can also give a reason. You know, you can get suspended for that, or that's mean, or you're hurting that kid, or you can give a remedy. Let's go talk to Mr. Smith after school. He's going to help us speak it through. Final thing that every child who's been victimized tells me when I say what would have helped, they say the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me was one of the kids came up afterwards and helped me with empathy. 
And I said, what kinds of things did they do? Simple things. It wasn't really a big thing, but it was the most amazing thing when a kid came up to me and said, you didn't deserve that. Or I had that happen to me. Don't worry. Or I'm going to be with you and I'll help you. Or would you like me to report this to the teacher with you? Or giving the kid a note saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened. That's using empathy. But here's some keys. Just like back to that child in the Senate chambers, he said, teach us how. Best ways to teach any of those skills are not telling a child, showing them. Show, don't tell. Role play over and over again. And what you'll do is you'll give your child a repertoire of things you can do to keep their empathy open. And what will also happen is you'll slowly begin to reduce bullying. Bullying, 85% of the time happens when adults aren't present. But the other thing we've realized is the best hope we have are kids. Kids who have empathy, who stand up to the plate and go, not in my school, not with my peers. We're going to step in together and you're mobilizing their hearts. And that's how you change the world one heart at a time. I can connect to that story with children and how they make the change. Um, there was several years ago, I was a principal in California and we had this whole peanut allergy situation yeah. and how are we going to take care of this and so we started out by mandating different things please don't send this kind of peanut butter and yeah they're trying to problem solve with the adults and it wasn't working yeah um there was some pushback or maybe lack of empathy but just maybe you know busy moms just trying to get their kids yeah. lunches together so i don't think it yeah. was intentional but what happened was shifting it over to the children so we started going in classrooms and teaching them about what does it mean to have a peanut allergy how does that feel? How, you know, going to parties and you can't empathy, eat the things empathy. that you want. Yeah. And yes. So what happened was we put the, the situation onto the children. And what I found was I'd go by the tables and they'd say, Miss yeah. Zimmer, I had to move my yeah. lunch down. I'm eating by Michelle today oh. because I can't sit by Bill who is allergic to peanuts. We saw this amazing shift with just yeah. working directly with the children. The problems went away. The children started solving it themselves. You know, Lisa, what you also do is just confirm the research. Because research says, first of all, let's give kids permission to care. Let's not bubble wrap them. Let's ask them what the solutions are. They always have the right solutions. We don't listen to them nearly enough. We give them a voice. The other things I've seen kids do, they've got so concerned on some schools, and they actually asked if they could go to class to class and try to mobilize their peers. University of California, Davis, they, Riverside, excuse me, what they did is they actually did a huge survey of middle school kids, asking them what would stop bullying. And every kid said, don't put up those signs that say stop bullying. Instead, flip them. Tell us what you want us to do instead. Very similar to the kids, show us how to care. And so what they did is they asked all the kids to just to do a little online survey of on a scale of one to 10, how much do you want kids to step in and help? 99% of kids said they want us to help. Then they had the kids come up with the posters. Right, you write the posters and you walk down to the school. 99% of kids at this school want us to step in and care. 97% of kids at this school don't like bullying. What they did is they diffused the power of the bullies and they put it back to the kids with the empathy. They changed the culture. What we've got to do is just, just sit down with the kids. Ask them what do you think. It's really powerful. Um, yeah. so there was some uh, mean girl fourth grade behavior which happens in relational aggression. Yeah. And really, rather than, 
punish this girl that was really the ringleader of all of this, had her create a presentation on what is relational aggression and bullying within her age group, and then she went class to class and presented that to her. That's a, that is a great idea. I know another principal who did something similar to this that a parent can do. The principal was sitting in her office and noticed one of the mean girls walking by her office. She just noticed. She knew it. What did she do? She got out of her chair and did a different technique. Hi. Oh, come on in here. I'm reading this really great book. And it was odd girl out. Would you do me? Do you think if you can get some other girls involved that we can get one big book club going and we can read the book together? She didn't say you're the mean girl. She said, come on, let's read it together. She did something else brilliant. Part two is she had the kids all keep a journal. As they were reading, the first thing they began to realize is they were doing some of those behaviors. The second thing they started to do is realize that they all had guilt and they felt they flipped it. And the most brilliant thing the principal did was then do a mother-daughter tea have all the girls together and ask the girls if she could anonymously read some of their passages. Mothers were blown away because they didn't realize the girls were involved in it. And now everybody was on board together going, all right, let's figure out how to be more compassionate with one another and more inclusive. I know we're coming towards the end of our, our conversation and I think we could talk for hours. You've just been a wealth of information for all of us. I saw your passport. I know it's very thick. I know you travel the world and sharing this message. You've written 22 books. You appear in various media channels and I was really pleased to hear from you last night wondering how you keep your pace with the energy you have and the schedule that I've heard you've been keeping. And you shared because this is your passion. You love this. As we conclude this, can you just share really what is inspiring you to change the world one person at a time through your message of empathy? Well, thank you for that. The first thing is, I think what hit me above all else was that statistic. Because I realize if empathy goes, humanity goes. Mm -hmm. I have never seen so many kids who are hurting all over, but it's always been children. In every single place that I've been, I don't care where they are. Every child needs to feel safe. They need to feel accepted and they need to feel belong. Um, but I think it was in Rwanda that changed my life. It's groups of children who were absolutely the most special, glorious children. But it was the first place I was in was in an orphanage for deaf-mute children who were also abandoned by their family and their grandparents had been slaughtered in the most horrific genocide. It was the moment that I, I walked in and we were delivering backpacks that had been very simple, inexpensive backpacks that had been packed by children from Minnesota. And each backpack had in there like a little ruler and a little notebook and a little teeny piece of gum and candy whenever and a handwritten note from a kid. So we were delivering the backpacks and all the excitement from kids because none of them owned a backpack, none of them owned anything in there. And they just were just elated with these gifts. And I kept looking at one little guy who was off in the corner and he was looking through the backpack, but he was really distressed. The other kids were elated, he was distressed. And I saw him just, just devouring the backpack, going through every single piece. And I'm going, what did he not get? The notebook, the pad, the ruler? until I got closer and closer to him and I just saw the frustration until he found it. And he put it up and looked at it. It was the note. It was the note from the child. It was the handwritten note. And I'm going, my God, the note. And he looks at me and I'm like this and he starts sobbing. He signs 
love from the note and puts the note to his heart. And at that point, I'm a basket case. I'm crying. He's going like this, pointing to my tears. I'm going like this. And I'm realizing that's the basic commonality of every child is to just feel that acceptance, that love. And it all starts with empathy. That's also the moment I'm going, I am so moved by this. i got to keep going with this. But the note just said one simple little thing. I read it on the back of him. It says, hi, my name is Ryan. I live in Minnesota. I want you to know I packed this for you, and I hope you like it. I looked up where Kigali is. Here's where I live. Just know you have a new friend named Ryan. Mm. But I also realized that the most important thing that had happened there is Ryan didn't get to see the, the impact. I'm like moved. I got to keep going. I ended up writing a whole book on it, but mm. going if only Ryan had been there to watch when he handed that backpack and the power of one darn wonderful note, it changed that child's life. Mm -hmm. I could see him sleeping with that note every night, but we got to start face to face because empathy is nose diving everywhere I am. And empathy is what's going to keep the seeds of humanity together for our children. Thank you for listening. Be sure to keep an ear out for our next podcast.